Thank you, Brother Dave. And let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Micah, chapter 5. And uh, while you're rearranging your Sunday morning schedule, or you're discussing it anyway, I hope you will not suspend that opportunity for these children to quote Scripture in front of you. What a blessing to hear them. Even if they do just a part of a verse, they're beginning to hide God's Word in their hearts. That's so important. And I want to thank you again for the opportunity to be with you this past week. I've come to know so many of you, and it, it, I feel like I'm with family when I come here. And uh, I, th- I feel like you've got my back. I know I've got yours before the Lord in prayer. And I, I feel like you've got my back, and we're working together, and we're desiring to magnify our Lord. And this portion here in Micah 5, now we move into... Beloved, I would have loved to start with this section, but you know, homiletically, we, we work up to these things. But here is the center of the book. Here is the, the central message. Here is the means by which we're able to put the cross in front of us and put the world behind us and live for the Lord. So Micah chapter 5, we'll just read the first six verses. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. We're going to talk about who this is. And this one shall be peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land, and when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. They will waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. Now, he's mentioning the Assyrian here. It won't be the Assyria. Assyria as a country is gone, isn't it? It's in the area of modern-day Iraq. And maybe a portion of Iran would have been the, the country of Assyria. Nineveh, its capital on the Tigris River. But the Assyrian in Micah's day, and we've got to put this always in its historical context, In Micah's day, the Assyrian represented those who were against the purposes of God in this world. And ultimately, it will be all nations. There will be representatives from all nations that will be gathered against Israel and against the purposes of God in this world. You see, God has a plan. He has a purpose. And it is working itself out. He says this one to be ruler. The ultimate ruler. The rightful ruler that's coming. The Messiah. He's coming. And God planned him for how long ago? Just when we were born? 
No. Just when our grandparents were born? No. From everlasting, from of old, from eternity past. And while the world we live in, it it appears to many that God has checked out, that He's on vacation, that He's forgotten this world, and He's forgotten the people of this world. He hasn't forgotten, beloved. This is His time of quietness. He's purposely doing this until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And that's representative of most of us in this room. We've been brought out of every nation, tribe, and language. Isn't that amazing? Just to see a gathering like this in one room. Of every tribe. God has a remnant in every tribal group. Every nation group is going to be represented in His church. And we are part of that if we were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we always want to do, let's set this these six verses of chapter 5 in their context within the flow of Micah. They, they are right in the middle of a section that begins in chapter 4 that we began to look at on Wednesday night. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. The latter days prophecy that Micah gives. And this is a parallel. Micah 4, 1 through 8 is a parallel to Isaiah chapter 2. In fact, some of the wording is word for word identical. That's not a mistake because it's the same author with the capital A, isn't it? It's the Holy Spirit speaking through Isaiah and Micah. They're contemporaries. They may not have known each other. I don't think one copied off the other. I think it's the Holy Spirit that's speaking the same message. And here's the message. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. Beloved, this hasn't happened yet. The latter days prophecy, you put them all together from the Old Testament and the New. This has not happened. It's still future to us. It was future to Micah and his generation, and it's still future. Are you anticipating it? Am I? Do we live for this? In the latter days, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and the people shall flow to it. See, this was God's plan always from the foundation of the world. This has never happened. There has never been a time when the nations flowed to one place, one location, one city that God ordained would be the place where He would put His presence. It never happened during the history of Israel under the Old Testament opportunity that God gave them. There were times the Queen of Sheba came. There were times when different nation groups came to the temple to learn of the glory of God. But it was never all nations coming. But that was God's intention. And God's plan will be fulfilled. Satan will oppose it. He's opposing it now. There are people that want to wipe Israel out of the world because Satan thinks that if there's no Israel, Christ won't come back. And someone says to me, How could Satan be that foolish? Well, we know he's not foolish. We know he's very intelligent. He's the anointed cherub who covers in his Isaiah 14. And then Ezekiel 28 tells us more about him. He's not foolish. He's smarter than anyone in this room. But he is so blinded by what? Pride. He's so blinded by pride that he really thinks he can nudge God off of his throne and take over God's creation. Now, he's a creature like you and me. 
different from you and me because of the abilities that God gave him when he created him. But he rebelled against God, said, I will be like the Most High. And there are people in this world, men, that still think that. They still think that they can nudge God out of the place of authority in their lives and in this world and be like God. That's been true of every generation since the fall of man. But there's coming a day when Jerusalem's going to be changed. Like I suggested to you last week, if you want to see the Jerusalem of the New Testament time and of the Old Testament time, you've got to go to Israel now because if you wait till after the second coming, it's all going to be changed. The valley is going to run east-west instead of north-south. Jerusalem is, a mount, is going to be elevated as a mountain topographically, geographically. All that area is going to change. There's going to be a great river flowing out from Jerusalem to the Salt Sea. And all of that area is going to be wonderful. It's going to be fruitful again. The whole world during the Millennial Kingdom is going to be like the Garden of Eden, according to the Bible. But it won't be until the latter days. Paul says in Romans 8, all creation groans for this. Do you groan for it? Do I? Are we so caught up with living in this world and keeping up with the Joneses and, and, and keeping the stock market going and keeping all of our things that we focus on in this world that we forget who we really are as God's people and that He wants us to be a light to the world? It's a real challenge to us, isn't it? In Isaiah chapter 60, Isaiah parallel, just hold your finger here in Micah. Look at Isaiah, I'm sorry, chapter 62 in Isaiah, chapter 2 to 64, or I'm trying, sorry, chapter 60 to 62 in Isaiah, speak of this restoration of God's Old Testament people. In, in chapter 62, verse 1, for Zion's sake, now Zion. If you study your Bible, you'll see that Zion is not the church, never was. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. That Zion refers to the hill on which Jerusalem was built. Mount Zion, Zion, Jerusalem the same. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness. And her salvation is a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. This has not happened, beloved. This has not happened. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken like they are now. Nor shall your land any more be termed desolate like it's been for 1,800 years, but you shall be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah, for the Lord delights in you. See, the Lord's got a purpose. It's a purpose of restoration. Now, you all are getting in this series in Micah a first shot, a press proof, <laughs> because I have a plan in my mind if the Lord allows to maybe do a commentary on Micah. And one of the titles I'm thinking about is Brought Back from the Precipice. Brought back right from the edge. The edge of what? The edge of destruction, annihilation. The edge of being lost forever. What brings us back? 
Those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we had to come to that place, didn't we? We had to be broken. We had to be broken of our trust in ourselves. We had to be broken of this independent spirit that wants to be independent from God. But when we were broken when, and when we surrendered, and that is the process, that's the process in conversion, and it's the process in personal sanctification for every one of us, right? To be continually broken, surrender, and that leads to fruitful holiness. That's the process God wants to do. And He uses a picture here of the lame here in chapter 4. Now, you read Philip Keller and some of these that were shepherds that have written commentaries on Psalm 23, which uh, one of our young people quoted to us this morning. What I understand, I've never done shepherding, but sometimes there are certain sheep within the fold that just keep wandering, keep wandering away. They always want to go to the edge. They want to go to the edge of disaster. You know what the shepherd does? It breaks their leg. That's right, brother. You say, well, that's a terrible thing. Well, in the short term, it might be terrible for the pain and humiliation of that poor sheep. But in the long-term picture, he's done that sheep a great favor, hasn't he? Because he won't keep wandering now, at least while that leg is healing. And hopefully he'll learn a lesson. That's what it means to be broken. The Lord says in Isaiah that He looks upon those who are broken and of a contrite spirit and who tremble at His Word. So being broken is not something that we shy away from. We should delight in it when we know how wicked our sinful hearts are and how we need God to do that in our lives. That brokenness that brokenness that yields to the purposes of God. Like someone has said, when we're, sometimes we have to be flat on our back before we look up at God. Right? And God has His ways, beloved, of putting us flat on our back, doesn't He? He's a master at it. But if you understand the character of God, that He is always good. Psalm 119 says, Lord, You are good and You always do good. He always does good. Satan would have us believe that when He hurts us, when He breaks us, it's because He doesn't care for us. But that's just the opposite of the truth, isn't it? That is a deceitful lie. He does it because He loves us. You who are parents, did you spank your children because you hated them? You spanked your children for their good because you loved them. That tough love that Jim Dobson wrote about years ago. It's so important. And so he uses the picture here, in, still in uh, Micah chapter 4, promising the beauty of the restoration of verse 4. Everyone sh shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree. 
Now that is a Middle Eastern expression. If you didn't grow up in the Middle East, you won't understand that. But if you grew up there, you understand that that means peace. That means security. That means fruitfulness. The, the food is there and it's in abundance. This earth is going to be transformed. The Bible talks about it in several places that, that the grain that will grow will be in abundance. You won't have to worry about where your meal is going to come the next day. There are people in this world that worry about that, aren't there? Now, we can run down to McDonald's or Burger King here for now, but there are people in the world that don't know where their next meal is coming from, and it's a large segment of the world population. Let's not forget them. The Lord said, don't forget the poor. You will always have them in this age. But there's an age coming, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken for all people. Verse 5, walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. That's a decision, you see. There's going to be a time when everyone that is on this earth will agree with this statement. We formerly walked in the names of our gods, the false gods of this world, but now we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God. And for how long? Forever. That's a decision with ongoing consequences, right? It's an ongoing change. And he uses that picture in verses 6 through 8. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, and I will gather the outcasts and those whom I have afflicted. And I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation so the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on even forever. It's interesting he uses this picture. Of all the picture, he could talk about blindness. He could talk about death to his word, blindness to his word, blindness to the truth. But he, ends, he uses this picture of the lame. And it, if you study Micah, you see that the, the metaphors connected to shepherding and sheep are all the way through this book. Makes me kind of think that maybe Micah himself, he lived in the Shelah in the area of Lachish there in the southwest of Israel. And it may be that he was a shepherd. It's certainly that there are sheep that are there even today. They graze sheep in that area. But the metaphors all the way through are like that. But think about it this way. Have you ever wondered, of all the signs, remember John records seven signs in his gospel? Of all the signs that our Lord did, the wonders, the miracles that he did in his public ministry, and there's so many of them, John says he couldn't even, the books couldn't hold them. So they, he picks out certain ones. And of all the signs he could pick out, in John chapter 5, what did he pick out? Well, our Lord happened to go to the pool of Bethesda. Bethesda means house of mercy. And you can go to that pool has been uncovered today. The church of St. Anne has been built right next to it. And they have dug down some 25 feet to the pool that was there in the time of our Lord in the first century. Five porticos are still there, five columns, witnesses, and he goes on to describe five witnesses in John 5. But who does he encounter there? Out of all the people that needed healing, he finds one person, a man that was lame. A man that was lame. And he heals him so that he walks, right? And we kind of pass over that and say, oh, that's an interesting miracle. We'll move on to John 6, you know, the feeding of the 5,000. Why did he pick that? I think he picked it because of this verse right here. See, being lame 
in the picture in, in Micah 4 is being out of the will of God not being able to walk with God right choosing the statutes of Omri instead of the word of God right Living for the purposes of Nimrod instead of for the purposes of God. Now, all of us have to make those decisions because this world system follows the statutes of Omri. If you'll talk about that, we already made reference to it later in the book, right? And, and if you think about Omri, well, over in Second Kings, in chapter 17, our Lord gives a summary of why the northern kingdom had been put into captivity, driven out of the land. Verse 13, The Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all His prophets, every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep My commandments and My statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by My servants, the prophets. Nevertheless, they would not hear. Right? And we live in a world system that has this same attitude. They would not hear, but stiffened their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected His statutes, His covenant that He had made with their fathers and His testimonies and so forth. And they were cast out of the land. They were cast out of the place of opportunity to be a blessing and testimony. Now I know of many. Now, not everybody who says they're a Christian is a Christian. Not everybody who talks about God knows God personally, not the God of the Bible at least. And we've got to be careful. The, the world we live in and the internet technology that's at our fingertips, there, I mean, nobody polices the internet. Anything can be put on there and it's basically unpoliceable. There's no way you can. Technologically, they, they put these various stop programs but, and they may block certain things out, but you can't block it out. That's just the world we live in. But especially to our young people who are the computer, the internet generation, you're choosing. You're going to either follow the Word of God or you're going to follow the statutes of Omri. Now, statutes of Omri brought Israel into a place of humiliation. They turned, they rejected the Word of God, but it didn't happen overnight. Omri's mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 16 and 17. Ahab, his son, and Jezebel, his wife, and they gradually introduced what we call syncretistic worship. In other words, they built temples of Baal, but they didn't deny the truth of the true God of Israel. That's what syncretism means. It means to bring in a couple of things together and work them together. And that's a very similar thing to what is happening in our world today. Because I hear this constantly. And Aaron and I were talking about it on Friday. I hear this constantly. Well, why can't we use the world's methods to reach the world? Why can't we use evil, put a few verses in it, and then say that we're preaching the gospel? Does that work, beloved? It sounds good at first. It sounds like a heart of mercy for the lost. But what do you do when you dilute the Word of God and make it look like evil? Even if someone did get saved, how are they going to live? They're going to live according to their old lifestyle. 
Bible says there to be a new creation. There's a distinction. There's a difference that happens. There's a separation that happens from our old life and from the old world. You can't mix the two together. Anyone that's doing that, I believe, is not a Christian. Or if they're a Christian, they're out of fellow, way out of fellowship with the Lord. And they need to be made lame. They need to be broken, see. Because they're drifting. And they're way away from the fold. They may not even know the danger they're in. They may not even know that as they wander out in the mountains and the hills, when they come to that precipice at night, and there's that one section, Dr. Safari knows where it is, down in the, the Nahalzin. I mean, you walk up there, there is nothing. There's no railing. <laughs> when you get down to the Negev, and, and all of a sudden it's a sheer drop of a couple hundred feet. And if you're out there at night, there are no street lights, there are no cities, but if you're out there wandering at night, you're going to just walk right off. And to your death, too. I mean, it is rocky and steep and straight down. And it just, all of a sudden, the earth just stops and boom, turns. And that's what it's like for many people who are wandering in the darkness of this world. They think they know better than God. They think God's Word isn't cool. They think God's Word is boring. And they're going to pay a huge price. Now, there's this institutional system in our world that we call it Christendom because it claims loyalty to Jesus Christ, but it is not of Christ. It's of the devil. It's the harlot, the false bride of Revelation 17 and 18. And it's very clever, and it will use biblical terminology. It'll claim loyalty to Christ, but when it comes to teaching the Word of God... They don't want to follow the Word of God. They want to dilute the Word of God. And it's creeping into all kinds of Christian ministries, beloved. All kinds of Christian ministries. You'd be surprised at some of the places it's creeping into. And who does our Lord hold responsible primarily? The elders. The local fellowship. It's the leaders, right? And that's why Micah was so hard in chapter 2 and 3 on the rulers, the leaders. Because they allowed this stuff to happen and didn't judge it, didn't take care of it, didn't remove it to protect the sheep because they're under shepherds of the chief shepherd, right? The chief shepherd is heaven and, and, and they're here on earth as his under shepherds. I, I like that term because it kind of keeps things in perspective. We don't believe in a clergy laity system where there's a certain special class. We're all brothers and sisters. We're all part of the family of God, but we have different roles and functions, right? And God has, or, or has ordained it that way for our good. Hebrews thirteen seventeen tells us that if we don't submit to the shepherds, the under shepherds he's put over us, it's it's not going to be good for us. <laughs> There's going to be discipline come into our lives, is what he's saying. And so it's a serious matter. If you take the word of God seriously. But this restoration that he talks about in chapter four, how is it going to happen? How's God going to do it? And that's what chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 tells us. Now in chapter 4, verse 9 to 13, he gives the truth in, in this kind of reversal of fortunes motif that we see constantly in the Bible. Israel's going to be humiliated and rejected. To Babylon you shall go, it says, into captivity. But 
There's going to come a time when God's going to reverse it and Israel is going to be restored. And then the nations are going to be judged. The very nations who God used to discipline His people, He will deal with them. He has dealt with some of them already. And He will deal with them. It's the same principle we often see happen. We don't always get to see it in our own lives. But it happens in our own lives too. Sometimes He will use someone very evil to discipline or chastise us. But God will eventually deal with the person who did the evil to us. He just used that in order to wake us up. To bring us back from the precipice. To bring us back into the fold. But ultimately, we talk about the, le the leaders, the rulers, the under-shepherds. Ultimately, there's only one ruler who really is the one who does it, isn't it? It's our Lord Jesus. And so that's why in kind of a, in the pinnacle, as we move through chapter 1, 2, and 3, and, and then 4 and 5, and in the middle of chapter 4 and 5, this section here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. What a way to describe it. Now, other prophets of the Old Testament give us a lot more information about the Lord's first advent, right? The first coming of our Lord. Psalm 22 gives us tremendous information. Psalm 69. These are quoted in the New Testament, and that's how we validate that they're referring portions of them are referring to the Lord Jesus, right? And then we have those great, powerful sections in that great book of Isaiah. 66 chapters of unfolding both the first and second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the deliverer of this world. But Micah is focused primarily, as you've noticed, on the second coming, isn't he? The only real reference to the first coming is this verse 2 that we often quote at Christmas time. Because he says, But you... Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah. This is interesting because he's worked through those 12 different areas in the Shvelah there in chapter 1 where he used that play on words to describe Aksib and, and Adullam and all these different places. And, and then Bethlehem, there's a Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a forgotten city. It's a nothing city. But it was the city of David. Right? It, and they all knew that. The people in Micah's day knew that Bethlehem, Ephrathah, well, that's, that's, that's David's city. So some interpreted verse 2 as referring to, well, that means there's going to be a ruler from David's house again to come. But they didn't realize that he had to be virgin born, that he was God. And that it was interesting, you know, when Herod, when the wise men came from the east on their horses in a great, well, camels too, mostly camels, wouldn't it, brother? And they're coming from the east and they come in and we want to see where the king is. Where is he to be born? We just know we, fought, we saw a star while we were in the east and we followed it west to the land. And Herod turns to the Pharisees and the scribes and they quote, Micah 5.2, right away they know. Well, yeah, Bethlehem Ephrathah, it, had to, it must be there. And of course they were right. The wise men go there, they find Messiah. How many of the Jews went there to receive Him? Nobody. Animals were there. The shepherds came. The wise men came. Wise men still seek Him today, right? 
But the unwise don't. The unwise think they're smarter than God. They're going to find out. Don't imitate them. Don't pretend to be like them. Don't admire them. Before I was saved, I lived. I, I admired. Those were my heroes. They're not anymore. I pray for them now, if they're still alive. Jesus Christ is my hero now. There's been a change. There's been a transfer. The leadership has changed in my life. What about yours? Is he really the leader? Are you glad to have him on the throne of your heart? There's no one like him. No one like him. And if you don't know that, you don't know him yet. But you can come to know him. He still has an invitation out, doesn't he? Come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, burdened down with sin, burdened down with false religion, burdened down with false gods, burdened down with hopelessness. Take my yoke instead of the world's yoke, instead of Nimrod's yoke, instead of the yoke of the Assyrian, instead of the yoke of those who are opposed to God. Take my yoke. That's a picture of discipleship. And it's a picture of, again, as we've seen in Micah, walking together. Can two walk together unless they be agreed? Right? And walking is a picture of fellowship. Look what he says about him in verse 4. He shall stand and feed his flock. He's going to stand on the earth, beloved, and feed his flock. He did that in his first advent to some extent. In the strength of the Lord, he'll do it. In the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God, he will do it. And they shall abide. They shall not abide be disciplined by the Assyrian or by any other enemies anymore like they were in Micah's day. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Is Jesus Christ great to the ends of the earth now? No. He's only great in the hearts of those who walk with Him, who are His disciples, who love Him, who know what it is to be born again and to walk with majesty because He is the majestic one. Amen? And so, as I think of this shepherding metaphor, we'll close. Just turn, if you will, just, just for a few seconds to John chapter 10. Because I believe when the Lord gives this discourse in John chapter 10, He is referring to Micah chapter 5. And those who understood the Old Testament would have recognized that. John chapter 10 fits into a section that begins way back in chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, all together down through verse... 21 of chapter 10 and we know that in chapter 7 it was during the Feast of Tabernacles which would be right at this time of the year. They just celebrated Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur last week and they're moving into the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles is a picture of the Millennial Kingdom, the great final ingathering of the remnant of God's people. All these festivals describe what our Lord's about to do. Many believe that His second coming will be during this time of year in the Feast of Tabernacles, and you can make a good case for it. But here in John chapter 10, He says in verse 3, To Him, this, this shepherd, to Him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear His voice, and He calls His own sheep by name, and does what? 
leads them out. Out of what? Out of sin. Out of error. Out of false doctrine. Out of false gods and false religion. Out of everything that characterizes our old life. He leads us out. And that's what sanctification means, doesn't it? Personal sanctification that God intends for everyone. And because 1 Thess 4.3 tells us this is the will of God. Do you want to know what the will of God is for your life? Indeed, your sanctification. That's one of the purposes God has for you and I now. And we participate with Him in that as we walk with the shepherd. And then He says in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Is there anything ambiguous about that statement? (laughs) Pretty clear, isn't it? There's a promise attached to an invitation. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, do they have to be from a certain tribe or nation group? No. Anyone, he says, right? Anyone. Everyone is invited. If anyone enters by me, Jesus Christ, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Will be refreshed spiritually. Will rejoice even in the trials of this life. Will be fed and nurtured by the living God, Jesus Christ, through his word and through his people. And then in verse 11, he says... I am the good shepherd. If there's any discrepancy about who he is, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. You see, he is the means. He is the basis by which we are enabled to be restored to God. To be brought back from the precipice, from the very edge of destruction. And that destruction's forever. I love Him for it. Did I deserve it? No. Did you deserve it? No. The Bible tells us that. It's while we were yet sinners. While we were enemies of God. While we were helpless. While we were without strength. And then verse 14 is the last. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. Do you know Him as your Savior this morning? If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, He knows you too. (laughs) And the invitation still goes out to walk with Him. To walk with majesty. Now, don't ask me to explain how a holy God could ever make this happen because the details of it are beyond words. But He sent His own Son to die on a cross. A perfect, holy, harmless, loving person to die on the cross so that sinful wretches like you and me could be saved and brought into his flock, into his family. And those of us who know him know that he is good. He's a good shepherd. We don't always understand what he brings into our lives. 
We don't always like it when He brings in discipline and breaks our leg, as it were, because we don't think that we would ever wander. But we're prone to wander, aren't we? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And He uses that shepherd's crook, like it says in Psalm 23, and He brings us back. Brings us back to those still waters. The sheep won't drink from waters in a brook when they're all rustling, I'm told. They, they want that still water. They'll just pull back. Now, you may not like the metaphor of sheep, but it works. Brother told me years ago, he said, Brother, sheep are dirty animals. I've been around them. I mean, it's just the nature of they get dirty and they stay dirty. He said, if the dirt bothers you, don't get involved as an under-shepherd. Because it's going to happen. The key is we want to be there for them. And if one of our own drifts away, we go out and get him, don't we? And we put him on our shoulders if we have to. And we bring him back. We don't let him just keep wandering out on the hills. Oh, just wandering out in the darkness. So, may the Lord help us. Mike is a great picture of that, isn't it? Now we'll see tonight the will of the Lord. We look into chapter 7. What our response, what Israel's response was to this great truth and what our response should be. I'll give you a hint. A couple of our children quoted it this morning. Praise, thanksgiving, appreciation, gratitude. Who's a God like you? Mikael, who's a God like you? Incomparable greatness. Does that draw your heart? draws my heart. Father, we thank you, O Lord, for the word of God and for the rich encouragement it is. And we pray, O Lord, that you will work in each heart. Each soul is unique and important to you here this morning. We're thankful, O Lord, for this family, for the opportunity to be a testimony for you in this community, in this location. Thankful for the under-shepherds, the elders that you use here to guide the flock and with a heart of humility and being examples to the flock, desiring to lead them to the fresher, still waters of your word and of your son. Help us, O Lord, to appreciate you more, to rejoice in you and be confident in your protecting power. As we give you thanks, in the Lord Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, Amen.